Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. It's Joe Wiegand in Medora, North Dakota. It's April 1st, 2020. I'm welcoming you to Teddy Talks. During the month of April, 26 days with the 26th president. We're coming to you live, and you'll be able to view this later on Facebook, uh, at the Teddy Roosevelt Show. Uh, we're live at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora, the Medora, North Dakota Facebook page. I've got a couple of cameras running right now. You'll have to be patient with me. We'll work on this to get some of the technical aspects improved, but I wanted to welcome you to what will be a month-long celebration of the history of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, some telling of stories, and, and really something that has motivated me for 15 years studying and performing as Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt in his own words. Today is the anniversary of the capture of the boat thieves, a young 27-year-old rancher, Theodore Roosevelt, and a couple of his cohorts from Maine, William Sewell and Wilmot Dow, chasing boat thieves down the Little Missouri River in Dakota Territory and capturing those thieves on this day, April 1st, 1886. After we uh, do a little bit of history and a little bit of previewing the month ahead, I'll read from Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail, a chapter, Sheriff's Work on a Ranch. That's Theodore Roosevelt's original writing. Uh, that reading is going to be rather long today, uh, but uh, programs in the future, I'll do shorter readings. We can spend a little bit more time answering your questions. Send those comments today. I'll look at them this afternoon, tonight, answer some of them tomorrow morning. But looking ahead through the week, again, celebrating this date in history in Theodore Roosevelt's life. April 2nd, tomorrow, Thursday, a message to our college students. We know that so many of you college students are home now doing distance learning. Your graduation ceremonies for the class of 2020, a very different thing. On April 2nd in uh, 1903, on his way west, President Theodore Roosevelt addressed uh, uh, the student body at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, and spoke at the dedication of the new, new law school at the University of Chicago. Uh, so our theme on Thursday, April 2nd, will be a message to the college students of this country by Theodore Roosevelt. Friday, April 3rd, a presentation on good neighbors 
will be commemorating the Fri the April 3rd, 1883rd arrival of Antoine Amade Marie Vincent Manca Amat de Valambrosa, Marquis at Matamajore. That's why we call him the Marquis de Moore. Uh, two uh, uh, big characters in the Badlands arrived in 83, uh, uh, the Marquis de Moore and Theodore Roosevelt. And their neighborly relations are an interesting study. On that date in 1903, again on his trip west, President Theodore Roosevelt made a speech about foreign relations and used that good neighbor analogy in a speech he made in Waukesha, Wisconsin. On Wisconsin, Saturday, April 4th, a salute to our friends in Minnesota. Uh, it was at the State Fair in Minnesota as Vice President, Labor Day 1901, that Theodore Roosevelt first uh, uh, quoted the old African proverb so closely associated with his subsequent presidential administration, speak softly and carry a big stick, you will go far. On April 4th, 1903, President Roosevelt spoke to the state legislature in St. Paul and at the University of Minnesota Chapel in Minneapolis, and so a salute to Minnesota on Saturday, April 4th. Again, no program live on Sunday. Uh, we'll uh, pick back up again on Monday. Today in history, uh, April 1st, 1815, was the birth of Otto Leopold von Bismarck, uh, the Prussian prince and general who unified Germany in 1871, served as chancellor of Germany until 1890. In so many ways, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, foreign policy viewpoints were impacted by the rise of Germany, uh, uh, Bismarck's building of a powerful modern German Navy. Uh, eventually, the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine uh, is in part to keep the Germans out of uh, the Caribbean and South America. Uh, so on this date, in April 1st, the birth of uh, Bismarck, who dominated uh, 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 European politics uh, from the time Teddy Roosevelt was a teenager until his early 30s. So uh, a very important uh, character to know if you know Teddy Roosevelt. On April 1st, 1917, the death in New York City of 48-year-old Scott Joplin, the American composer. Uh, did you know he's an African-American son of Texarkana? Uh, Joplin's ragtime compositions are American treasures, maple leaf rag, uh, so important in the genre, and you might know uh, The Entertainer, the theme music of the movie Sting from 1973, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman. That's the only singing or uh, music you'll hear in uh, today's or probably this week's programs. Uh, I wonder if you knew, in 1903, Scott Joplin filed a copyright for his first opera. The opera was titled A Guest of Honor. The setting and theme were the October 1901 visit to the White House and dinner at the White House uh, between President Theodore Roosevelt and his family and Booker T. Washington the president of Tuskegee University, the Wizard of Tuskegee, a, a friend and a confidant of Theodore Roosevelt's throughout his presidency, and on that date in October, the first man of color to be a dinner guest of the American president uh, at the White House. No score was filed with his copyright application. No score to uh, a guest of honor was ever published, and so it's known as uh, Scott Joplin's Lost Opera. 
a guest of honor. I wonder what the character of Theodore Roosevelt would have sounded like in opera. Um, Scott Joplin died this day, April 1st, uh, in 1917 in New York City. Uh, now on to the reading of uh, the sheriff's work on a ranch and, and a little note with regards to this reading and future readings of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, a modern audience may find his language uh, a bit archaic. Uh, uh, I've always said that uh, his English teacher, if he had one, uh, would have told him he was a bit abusive of the semicolon. Uh, sentences uh, are complex and run on a bit. Uh, uh, some of his word choices is uh, a bit uh, old, might need a little explanation. Hopefully uh, uh, parents will use this opportunity to send children uh, to the dictionary. Uh, there also might, though, seem to be a bit of a lack of sensitivity. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, early on in the first line of this, uh, references skin color, uh, later ethnicity. Uh, there are stories of hunting. Uh, some people may find some of this language a, a little off-putting. And in future programs, I'm more than glad to address uh, some of the issues, uh, very important issues related to the use of language, uh, race relations, and those sorts of things. There's also in this reading uh, a few stanzas and excerpts from Robert Browning, uh, the famous Victorian English poet. Theodore Roosevelt not uh, citing Browning, uh, simply assuming that his educated readers of uh, Century uh, magazine would uh, 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 certainly uh, uh, know Browning uh, when they saw it. So, welcome to Teddy Talks. Let's let the man talk for himself. I'm going to try to uh, read this in a clear, distinct voice with a little bit of Rooseveltian pronunciation, but not full-on uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, uh, a good long reading uh, in that voice uh, uh, is very straining on the throat. We've got 26 days to get through in April and more to get through in May. But uh, the capture of the boat thieves on the Little Missouri River in the badlands of North Dakota In our own immediate locality, we have had more difficulty with white desperados than with the redskins. At times, there has been a good deal of cattle killing and horse stealing, and occasionally a murder or two. But as regards the last, a man has very little more to fear in the West than, the, than in the East, in spite of all the lawless acts one reads about. Undoubtedly, a long-standing quarrel sometimes ends in a shooting match, and of course, savage affrays occasionally take place in the bar rooms, in which be it remarked that inasmuch as the men are generally drunk, and furthermore, as the revolver is at best a rather inaccurate weapon, outsiders are nearly as apt to get hurt as are the participants. But if a man minds his own business and does not go into bar rooms, gambling saloons, and the like, he need have no fear of being molested. While a revolver is a mere foolish encumbrance for any but a trained expert and need never be carried. Against horse thieves, cattle thieves, claim jumpers, and the like, however, every ranch man has to be on his guard and armed collisions with these gentry are sometimes inevitable. The fact of such scoundrels being able to ply their trade with impunity for any length of time can only be understood if the absolute wildness of our land is taken into account. The country is yet unsurveyed and unmapped. 
the course of the river itself, as put down on the various government and railroad maps, is very much a mere piece of guesswork, its bed being in many parts, as by my ranch, ten or fifteen miles or more away from where these maps make it. White hunters came into the land by 1880, but the actual settlement only began in 1882, when the first cattlemen drove in their herds all of northern stock, the Texans not passing north of the country around the headwaters of the river until the following year, while until 1885 the territory through which it ran for the final 150 miles before entering the big Missouri remained as little known as ever. Some of us had always been anxious to run down the river in a boat during the time of the spring floods, as we thought we might get good duck and goose hunting, and also kill some beaver, while the trip would, in addition, have all the charm of an exploring expedition. Twice, so far as we knew, the feat had been performed, both times by hunters, and in one instance with very good luck in shooting and trapping. A third attempt by two men on a raft made the spring preceding that on which we made ours had been less successful, for when a score or so of miles below our ranch, a bear killed one of the two adventurers, and the survivor returned. We could only go down during a freshet, for the little Missouri, like most Plains rivers, is usually either a dwind dwindling streamlet, a mere slender thread of sluggish water, or else a boiling, muddy torrent running over a bed of shifting quicksand that neither man nor beast can cross. It rises and falls with extraordinary suddenness and intensity, an instance of which has just occurred as this very page is being written. Last evening, when the moon rose, from the ranch veranda we could see the riverbed almost dry the stream having shrunk under the drought till it was little but a string of shallow pools, with between them a trickle of water that was not ankle-deep, and hardly wet the fetlocks of the saddle-band when driven across it. Yet at daybreak this morning, without any rain having fallen near us, but doubtless in consequence of some heavy cloudburst near its head, the swift swollen current was foaming brim-high between the banks, even the fords were swimming deep with for the horses. Accordingly, we had planned to run down the river, sometime towards the end of April, taking advantage of a rise. But an accident made us start three or four weeks sooner than we had intended. In 1886, the ice went out of the upper river very early, during the first part of February, but it at times almost froze over again. The bottom ice did not break up, and a huge gorge, scores of miles in length, formed in and above the bend known as the Oxbow, a long distance upstream from my ranch. About the middle of March, this great Oxbow jam came down past us. It moved slowly, its front forming a high, crumbling wall and creaming over like an immense breaker on the seashore. We could hear the dull roaring and crunching as it plowed down the riverbed 
long before it came in sight round the bend above us. The ice kept piling and tossing up in the middle, not only heaped itself above the level of the banks, but also in many places spread out on each side beyond them, grinding against the cottonwood trees in front of the ranch veranda, and at one moment bidding fair to overwhelm the house itself. It did not, however, but moved slowly down past us with that look of vast, resistless, relentless force that any great body of moving ice as a glacier or an iceberg always conveys to the beholder. The heaviest pressure from the water was that was backed up behind being, of course, always in the middle, this part kept breaking away and finally was pushed on clear through, leaving the river so changed that it could hardly be known. On each bank and for a couple of hundred feet out from it into the stream was a solid mass of ice edging the river along most of its length, at least as far as its course lay through lands that we knew and in the narrow channel between the sheer ice walls the water ran like a mill race. At night the snowy glittering masses tossed up and heaped into fantastic forms shone like crystal in the moonlight but they soon lost their beauty becoming fouled and blackened and at the same time melted and settled down until it was possible to clamber out across the slippery hummocks. We had brought out a clinker-built boat, especially to ferry ourselves over the river when it was high, and were keeping our ponies on the opposite side, where there was a good range shut in by some very broken country that we knew they would not be apt to cross. This boat had already proved very useful, and now came in handier than ever, as without it we could take no care of our horses. We kept it on the bank, tied to a tree, and every day we would carry it or slide it across the hither ice bank, usually with not a little tumbling and scrambling on our part, lower it gently into the swift current, pull it across to the ice on the farther bank, and then drag it over that, repeating the operation when we came back. One day we crossed and walked off about ten miles, to attract a wild and rugged country, cleft in every direction by ravines and cedar canyons, in the deepest of which we had left four deer hanging a fortnight before, as game thus hung up in cold weather keeps indefinitely. The walking was very bad, especially over the clay buttes, for the sun at midday had enough strength to thaw out the soil to the depth of a few inches only, and accordingly the steep hillsides were covered by a crust of slippery mud with the frozen ground underneath. It was hard to keep one's footing and to avoid falling while balancing along the knife-like ridge crests or while clinging to the stunted sagebrush as we went down into the valleys. The deer had been hung in a thicket of dwarfed cedars, but when we reached the place, we found nothing save scattered pieces of their carcasses, and the soft mud was trampled all over with round, deeply marked footprints, some of them but a few hours old, showing that the plunderers of our cachet were a pair of cougars, mountain lions as they are called by the Westerners. They had evidently been at work for some time, 
and had eaten almost every scrap of flesh. One of the deer had been carried for some distance to the other side of a deep, narrow, chasm-like gully across which the cougar must have leaped with the carcass in its mouth. We followed the fresh trail of the cougars for some time, as it was well marked, especially in the snow still remaining in the bottoms of the deep ravines. Finally, it led into a tangle of rocky hills riven by dark, cedar-clad gorges in which we lost it, and we retraced our steps, intending to return on the morrow with a good trackhound. But we never carried out our intentions, for next morning, one of my men who was out before breakfast came back to the house with the startling news that our boat was gone, stolen, for he brought with him the end of the rope with which it had been tied, evidently cut off with a sharp knife, and also a red woolen mitten with a leather palm which he had picked up on the ice. We had no doubt as to who had stolen it, for whoever had done so had certainly gone down the river in it, and the only other thing in the shape of a boat on the Little Missouri was a small flat-bottomed scow in the possession of three hard characters who lived in a shack or hut some twenty miles above us, and whom we had shrewdly suspected for some time of wishing to get out of the country, certain of the cattlemen had begun openly to threaten to lynch them. They belonged to a class that always holds sway during the raw youth of a frontier community, and the putting down of which is the first step towards decent government. Dakota, west of the Missouri, has been settled very recently, and every town within it has seen strange antics performed during the past six or seven years. Medora, in particular, has had more than its full share of shooting and stabbing affrays, horse-stealing and cattle-killing. But the time for such things was passing away, and during the preceding fall, the vigilantes, locally known as stranglers, in happy allusion to their summary method of doing justice, had made a clean sweep of the cattle country along the Yellowstone and that part of the big Missouri around and below its mouth. Be it remarked in passing that while the outcome of their efforts had been in the main wholesome, yet as is always the case in an extended raid of vigilantes, several of the sixty-odd victims had been perfectly innocent men who had been hung or shot in company with the real scoundrels, either through carelessness and misapprehension or on account of some personal spite. The three men we suspected had long been accused, justly or unjustly, of being implicated both in cattle killing and in that worst of frontier crimes, horse stealing. It was only by an accident that they had escaped the clutches of the vigilantes the preceding fall. Their leader was a well-built fellow named Finnegan, who had long red hair reaching to his shoulders and always wore a broad hat and a fringed buckskin shirt. He was rather a hard case and had been chief actor in a number of shooting scrapes. The other two were a half-breed, a stout, muscular man and an old German whose vicious viciousness was of the weak and shiftless type. We knew that these three men were becoming uneasy and were anxious to leave the locality. And we also knew that traveling on horseback in the direction in which they would wish to go was almost impossible, 
as the swollen, ice-fringed rivers could not be crossed at all, and the stretches of broken ground would form nearly as impassable barriers. So we had little doubt that it was they who had taken our boat, and as they knew, there was then no boat left on the river, and as the country along its banks was entirely impracticable for horses, we felt sure that, would, that they would be confident that there could be no pursuit. Accordingly, we at once set to work in our turn to build a flat-bottomed scow, wherein to follow them. Our loss was very annoying, and might prove a serious one if we were long prevented from crossing over to look after the saddle band. But the determining motive in our minds was neither chagrin nor anxiety to recover our property. In any wild country where the power of the law is little felt or heeded, and where everyone has to rely upon himself for protection, men soon get to feel that it is in the highest degree unwise to submit to any wrong without making an immediate and resolute effort to avenge it upon the wrongdoers, at no matter what cost of risk or trouble. To submit tamely and meekly to theft or to any other injury is to invite almost certain repetition of the offense. In a place where self-reliant hardihood and the ability to hold one's own under all circumstances rank as the first of virtues. Two of my cowboys, Sewell and Dow, were originally from Maine and were mighty men of their hands, skilled in woodcraft and the use of the axe, paddle, and rifle. They set to work with a will, and as by good luck there were plenty of boards, in two or three days they had turned out a first-class flat bottom, which was roomy, drew very little water, and was dry as a bone. And though, of course, not a handy craft, was easily enough managed in going downstream. Into this we packed flour, coffee, and bacon, enough to last us a fortnight or so, plenty of warm bedding and the mess kit, and early one cold March morning slid it into the icy current, took our seats, and shoved off down the river. There could have been no better men for a trip of this kind than my two companions, Sewell and Dow. They were tough, hardy, resolute fellows, quick as cats, strong as bears, and able to travel like bull moose. We felt very little uneasiness as to the result of a fight with the men we were after, provided we had anything like a fair show. Moreover, we intended, if possible, to get them at such a disadvantage that there would be not any fight at all. The only risk of any consequence that we ran was that of being ambushed, for the extraordinary formation of the Badlands, with the ground cut up into gullies, serried walls, and battlement hilltops, makes it the country of all others for hiding places and ambuscades. For several days before we started, the weather had been bitterly cold, as a furious blizzard was blowing. But on the day we left, there was a lull, and we hoped a thaw had set in. We all were most warmly and thickly dressed, with woolen socks and underclothes, heavy, heavy jackets and trousers, and great fur coats, so that we felt we could bid defiance to the weather. Each carried his rifle, 
and we had, in addition, a double-barreled duck gun for waterfowl and beaver. To manage the boat, we had paddles, heavy oars, and long iron-shod poles, Sewell steering while Dow sat in the bow. Altogether, we felt as if we were off on a holiday trip and set to work to have as good a time as possible. The river twisted in every direction, winding to and fro across the alluvial valley bottom, only to be brought up by the rows of great barren buttes that bounded it on each edge. It had worn away the sides of these till they towered up as cliffs of clay, marl, or sandstone. Across their white faces the seams of coal drew sharp black bands, and they were elsewhere blotched and varied with brown, yellow, purple, and red. This fantastic coloring, together with the jagged irregularity of their crests, channeled by the weather into spires, buttresses, and battlements, as well as their barrenness and the distinctness with which they loomed up through the high, dry air, gave them a look that was a singular mixture of the terrible and the grotesque. The bottoms were covered thickly with leafless cottonwood trees, or else were withered brown grass and stunted, sprawling sage bushes. At times the cliffs rose close to us on either hand, and again the valley would widen into a sinuous oval a mile or two long. Bounded on every side, as far as our eyes could see, by a bluff line without a break, until as we floated down close to its other end, there would suddenly appear in one corner a cleft through which the stream rushed out. As it drew, drew as it grew dusk, the shadowy outlines of the buttes lost nothing of their weirdness. The twilight only made their uncouth shapelessness more grim and forbidding. They looked like the crouching figures of great goblin beasts. Those two hills on the right crouched like two bulls locked horn in horn in fight, while to the left a tall scalped mountain, the dying sunset kindled through a cleft. The hills like giants at a hunting lay, chin upon hand to see the game at bay might well have been written after seeing the strange, desolate lands lying in western Dakota. All through the early part of the day, we drifted swiftly down between the heaped-up piles of ice, the cakes and slabs now dirty and unattractive-looking. Towards evening, however, there came long reaches where the banks on either side were bare, though even here there would every now and then be necks where the jam had been crowded into too narrow a spot and had risen over the side as it had done upstream, grinding the bark from the big cottonwoods and snapping the smaller ones short off. In such places the ice walls were sometimes eight or ten feet high, continually undermined by the restless current and every now and then overhanging pieces would break off and slide into the stream with a loud, sullen splash, like the plunge of some great water beast. Nor did we dare to go in too close to the high cliffs, as boulders and earth masses, freed by the thaw from the grip of the frost, kept rolling and leaping down their faces and forced us to keep a sharp lookout lest our boat should be swamped. 
At nightfall, we landed and made our camp on a point of wood-covered land jutting out into the stream. We had seen very little trace of life until in the day, uh, for the ducks had not yet arrived. But in the afternoon, a sharp-tailed prairie fowl flew across stream ahead of the boat, lighting on a low branch by the water's edge. Shooting him, we landed and picked off two others that were perched high up in leafless cottonwoods, plucking the buds. These three birds served as supper. And shortly afterward, as the cold grew more and more biting, we rolled in under our furs and blankets and were soon asleep. In the morning, it was evident that instead of thawing, it had grown decidedly colder. The anchor ice was running thick in the river, and we spent the first hour or two after sunrise in hunting over the frozen swamp bottom for white-tailed deer, of which there were many tracks, but we saw nothing. Then we broke camp and again started downstream. A simple operation, as we had no tent, and all we had to do was to cord up our bedding and gather the mess kit. It was colder than before, and for some time we went along in chilly silence. Nor was it until midday that the sun warmed our blood in the least. The crooked bed of the current twisted hither and thither, but whichever way it went, the icy north wind, blowing stronger all the time, drew steadily up it. One of us, remarking that we bade fair to have it in our faces all day, the steersman announced that we couldn't, unless it was the crookedest wind in Dakota. And half an hour afterward, we overheard him muttering to himself that it was the crookedest wind in Dakota. We passed a group of teepees on one bottom, marking the deserted winter camp of some Groventer Indians. Uh, ex uh, some of my men had visited a few months previously on a trading expedition. It was almost the last point on the river with which we were acquainted. At midday, we landed on a sandbar for lunch, a simple enough meal, the tea being boiled over a fire of driftwood that also fried the bacon, while the bread only needed to be baked every other day. Then we again shoved off. As the afternoon waned, the cold grew still more bitter, and the wind increased, blowing in fitful gusts against us, until it chilled us to the marrow when we sat still. But we rarely did sit still, for even the rapid current was unable to urge the light draft scow down in the teeth of the long, strong blasts, and we only got her along by dint of hard work with pole and paddle. Long before the sun went down, the ice had begun to freeze on the handles of the poles, and we were not sorry to haul on shore for the night. For supper, we again had prairie fowl, having shot four from a great patch of bulberry bushes late in the afternoon. A man doing hard work open air in cold weather is always hungry for meat. During the night, the thermometer went down to zero, and in morning, the anchor ice was running so thickly that we did not care to start at once, for it is most difficult to handle a boat in the deep frozen slush. Accordingly, we took a couple of hours for a deer hunt, as there were evidently many white tail on the bottom. We selected one long, isolated patch of tangled trees and brushwood, two of us beating through it while the other watched one end. 
but almost before we had begun, four deer broke out at one side, loped easily off, evidently not much scared, and took refuge in a deep glen or gorge, densely wooded with cedars that made a blind pocket in the steep side of one of the great plateaus bounding the bottom. After a short consultation, one of our number crept round to the head of the gorge, making a wide detour, and the other two advanced up it on each side, thus completely surrounding the doomed deer. They attempted to break out past the man at the head of the glen, who shot down a couple, a buck, and a yearling doe. The other two made their escape by running off over ground so rough that it looked fitter to be crossed by their upland-loving cousins, the Blacktail. This success gladdened our souls, ensuring us plenty of fresh meat. We carried pretty much all of both deer back to camp, and after a heavy breakfast, loaded our scow and started merrily off once more. The cold still continued intense, and as the day wore away, we became numbed by it, until at last an incident occurred that set our blood running freely again. We were, of course, always on the alert, keeping a sharp lookout ahead and around us, and making as little noise as possible. Finally, our watchfulness was rewarded, for in the middle of the afternoon of this, the third day we had been gone, as we came round a bend, we saw in front of us the lost boat, together with a scow moored against the bank, while from among the bushes some little way back the smoke of a campfire curled up through the frosty air. We had come on the camp of the thieves. As I glanced at the faces of my two followers, I was struck by the grim, eager look in their eyes. Our overcoats were off in a second, and after exchanging a few muttered words, the boat was hastily and silently shoved towards the bank. As soon as it touched the shore ice, I leapt out and ran up behind a clump of bushes so as to cover the landing of the others, who had to make the boat fast. For a moment, we felt a thrill of keen excitement, and our veins tingled as we crept cautiously towards the fire, for it seemed likely that there would be a brush but as it turned out, this was almost the only moment of much interest, for the capture itself was as tame as possible. The men we were after knew they had taken with them the only craft there was on the river, and so felt perfectly secure. Accordingly, we took them absolutely by surprise. The only one in camp was the German, whose weapons were on the ground, and who, of course, gave up at once his two companions being off hunting. We made him safe, delegating one of our number to look after him particularly, and see that he made no noise, and then sat down and waited for the others. The camp was under the lee of a cut bank, behind which we crouched, and after waiting an hour or over, the men we were after came in. We heard them a long way off and made ready, watching them for some minutes as they walked towards us, their rifles on their soldiers, and the sunlight glinting on the steel barrels. When they were within twenty yards or so, we straightened up from behind the bank, covering them with our cocked rifles, while I shouted to them to hold up their hands, an order that in such a case in the West a man is not apt to disregard if he thinks the giver is in earnest. The half-breed obeyed at once, 
his knees trembling as if they had been made of whalebone. Finnegan hesitated for a second, his eyes fairly wolfish. Then, as I walked up within a few paces, covering the center of his chest so as to avoid overshooting and repeating the command, he saw that he had no show, and with an oath, let his rifle drop and held his hands up beside his head. It was nearly dusk, so we camped where we were. The first thing to be done was to collect enough wood to enable us to keep a blazing fire all night long, while Sewell and Dow, thoroughly at home in the use of the axe, chopped down dead cottonwood trees and dragged the logs up into a huge pile, I kept guard over the three prisoners, who were huddled into a sullen group some twenty yards off, just the right distance for the buckshot in the double barrel. Having captured our men, we were in a quandary how to keep them. The cold was so intense that to tie them tightly hand and foot meant, in all likelihood, freezing both hands and feet off during the night, and it was no use tying them at all unless we tied them tightly enough to stop in part the circulation. So nothing was left for us to do but to keep perpetual guard over them. Of course, we had carefully searched them and taken away not only their firearms and knives, but everything else that could possibly be used as a weapon. By this time, they were pretty well cowed, as they found out very quickly that they would be well treated so long as they remained quiet, but would receive some rough handling if they attempted any disturbance. Our next step was to core their weapons up in some bedding, which we sat on while we took supper. Immediately afterward, we made the men take off their boots, an additional safeguard as it was a cactus country, in which a man could travel barefoot only at the risk of almost certainly laming himself for life, and go to bed, all three lying on one buffalo robe and being covered by another in the full light of the blazing fire. We determined to watch in succession a half night apiece, thus each getting a full rest every third night. I took first watch, my two companions, revolver under head, rolling up in their blankets on the side of the fire opposite that on which the three captives lay, while I, in fur cap, gantlets, and overcoat, took my station a little way back in the circle of firelight in a position in which I could watch my men with the absolute certainty of being able to stop any movement, no matter how sudden. For this night watching, we always used the double barrel with buckshot, as a rifle is uncertain in the dark, while with a shotgun at such a distance and with men lying down, a person who is watchful may be sure that they cannot get up, no matter how quick they are, without being riddled. The only danger lies in the extreme monotony of sitting still in the dark, guarding men who make no motion, and the consequent tendency to go to sleep, especially when one has had a hard day's work and is feeling really tired. But neither on the first night nor on any subsequent one did we ever abate a jot of our watchfulness. Next morning we started downstream, having a well-laden flotilla, for the men we had caught had a good deal of plunder in their boats, including some saddles, 
as they evidently intended to get horses as soon as they reached a part of the country where there were any and where it was possible to travel. Finnegan, who was the ringleader and the man I was especially after, I kept by my side in our boat, the other two being put in their own scow, heavily laden and rather leaky and with only one paddle. We kept them just in front of us, a few yards distant, the river being so broad that we knew, and they knew also, any attempt at escape would be perfectly hopeless. For some miles we went swiftly downstream, the cold being bitter and the slushy anchor ice choking the space between the boats. Then the current grew sluggish, eddies forming along the sides. We paddled on until, coming into a long reach where the water was almost backed up, we saw there was a stoppage at the other end. Working up to this, it proved to be a small ice jam through which we broke our way only to find ourselves after a few hundred yards stopped by another. We had hoped that the first was merely a jam of anchor ice caused by the cold of the last few days, but the jam we had now come to was black and solid and running the boats ashore one of us went off down the bank to find out what was the matter. On climbing a hill that commanded a view of the valley for several miles, the explanation became only too evident. As far as we could see, the river was choked with black ice. The great oxbow jam had stopped, and we had come down to its tail. We had nothing to do but to pitch camp, after which we held a consultation. The Little Missouri has much too swift a current, when it has any current at all, with too bad a bottom, for it to be possible to take a boat upstream, and to walk meant, of course, abandoning almost all we had. Moreover, we knew that a thaw would very soon start the jam, and so made up our minds that we had best simply stay where we were, and work downstream as fast as we could, trusting that the spell of bitter weather would pass before our food gave out. The next eight days were as irksome and monotonous as any I ever spent. There is very little amusement in combining the functions of a sheriff with those of an Arctic explorer. The weather kept as cold as ever. During the night, the water in the pail would freeze solid. Ice formed all over the river thickly along the banks, and the clear, frosty sun gave us so little warmth that the melting hardly began before noon. Each day the great jam would settle downstream a few miles, only to wedge again, leaving behind it several smaller jams, through which we would work our way until we were as close to the tail of the large one as we dared to go. Once we came round a bend and got so near that we were in a good deal of danger of being sucked under. The current ran too fast to let us work back against it, and we could not pull the boat up over the steep banks of rotten ice, which were breaking off and falling in all the time. We could only land and snub the boats up with ropes, holding them there for two or three hours until the jam worked down once more all the time, of course, having to keep guard over the captives who had caused us so much trouble that we were bound to bring them in, no matter what else we lost. 
We had to be additionally cautious on account of being in the Indian country, having worked down past Kildeer Mountains, where some of my cowboys had run across a band of Sioux, said to be Tetons, uh, the year before. Very probably, the Indians would not have harmed us anyhow, but as we were hampered by the prisoners, we preferred not meeting them. Nor did we, though we saw plenty of fresh signs, and found to our sorrow that they had just made a grand hunt all down the river, and had killed or driven off almost every head of game in the country through which we were passing. As our stock of provisions grew scantier and scantier, we tried in vain to eke out by the chase, for we saw no game. Two of us would go out hunting at a time, while the third kept guard over the prisoners. The latter would be made to sit down together on a blanket at one side of the fire, while the guard for the time being stood or sat some fifteen or twenty yards off. The prisoners being unarmed and kept close together, there was no possibility of their escaping, and the guard kept at such a distance that they could not overpower him by springing on him, he having a Winchester or the double-barreled shotgun always in his hands, cocked and at the ready. So long as we kept wide awake and watchful, there was not the least danger, as our three men knew us and understood perfectly that the slightest attempt at a break would result in their being shot down. But although there was thus no risk, it was harassing, tedious work, and the strain day in and day out with any rest or let up became very tiresome. The days were monotonous to a degree. The endless rows of hills bounding the valley, barren and naked, stretched along without a break. When we rounded a bend, it was only to see on each hand the same lines of broken buttes dwindling off into the distance ahead of us as they climbed to their tops. As far as our eyes could scan, there was nothing but the great rolling prairie, bleak and lifeless, reaching off to the horizon. We broke camp in the morning on a point of land covered with brown, leafless, frozen cottonwoods, and in the afternoon we pitched camp on another point in the midst of a grove of the same stiff, dreary trees. The discolored river, whose eddies boiled into yellow foam, flowed always between the same banks of frozen mud or of muddy ice. And what was, from a practical standpoint, even worse, our diet began to be as same as the scenery. Being able to kill nothing, we exhausted all of our stock of provisions and got reduced to flour without yeast or baking powder and unleavened bread made with exceedingly muddy water is not as a steady thing attractive. Finding that they were well treated and were also watched with the closest vigilance, our prisoners behaved themselves excellently and gave no trouble, though afterward when out of our hands and shut up in jail, the half-breed got into a stabbing affray. They conversed freely with my two men on a number of indifferent subjects, and after the first evening no allusion was made to the theft or anything connected with it, so that an outsider overhearing the conversation would never have guessed what our relations to each other really were. Once and only once did Finnegan broach the subject. 
Somebody had been speaking of a man whom we all knew, called Calamity, who had been recently taken by the sheriff on a charge of horse-stealing. Calamity had escaped once, but was caught at a disadvantage the next time. Nevertheless, when summoned to hold his hands up, he refused and attempted to draw his own revolver, with the result of having two bullets put through him. Finnegan commented on Calamity as a fool for, quote, not knowing when a man had the drop on him, unquote, and then, suddenly, turning to me, said, his weather-beaten face flushing darkly, quote, If I'd had any show at all, you'd have sure had to fight, Mr. Roosevelt, but there wasn't any use making a break when I'd only have got shot myself with no chance of harming anyone else, unquote. I laughed and nodded, and the subject was dropped. Indeed, if the time was tedious to us, it must have seemed never-ending to our prisoners, who had nothing to do but to lie still and read, or chew the bitter cud of their reflections, always conscious that some pair of eyes was watching them every moment, and that at least one loaded rifle was ever ready to be used against them. They had quite a stock of books, some of a rather unexpected kind, dime novels, and the inevitable History of the James Brothers, a book that together with the Police Gazette is to be found in the hands of every professed or putative ruffian in the West, seemed perfectly in place. But it was somewhat surprising to find that a large number of more or less drearily silly society novels, ranging from Ouida's to those of the Duchess and Augusta J. Evans, were most greedily devoured. As for me, I had brought with me Anna Karenina, and my surroundings were quite gray enough to harmonize well with Tolstoy. Our commons grew shorter and shorter, and finally even the flower was nearly gone, and we were again forced to think seriously of abandoning the boats. The Indians had driven all the deer out of the country. Occasionally we shot prairie fowl, but they were not plentiful. A flock of geese passed us one morning, and afterward an old gander settled down on the river near our camp, but he was over two hundred yards off, and a rifle shot missed him. Where he settled down, by the way, the river was covered with thick glare ice that would just bear his weight, and it was curious to see him stretch his legs out in front and slide forty or fifty feet when he struck, balancing himself with his outspread wings. But when the day was darkest, the dawn appeared. At last, having worked down some thirty miles at the tail of the ice jam, we struck an outlying cow camp of the Sea Diamond Ranch and knew that our troubles were almost over. There was but one cowboy in it, but we were certain of his cordial help, for in a stock country all make common cause against either horse thieves or cattle thieves. He had no wagon, but told us we could get one up at a ranch near Kildeer Mountains, some fifteen miles off, and lent me a pony to go up there and see about it, which I accordingly did, after a sharp preliminary tussle when I came to mount the wiry bronco, one of my men remarking in a loud aside to our cowboy ho host, the boss ain't no bronco buster. When I reached the solitary ranch spoken of, I was able to hire a large prairie schooner 
and two tough little bronco mares driven by the settler himself, a rugged old plainsman who evidently could hardly understand why I took so much bother with the thieves instead of hanging them offhand. Returning to the river the next day, we walked our men up to the Kildeer Mountains. Sewell and Dow left me the following morning, went back to the boats, and had no further difficulty, for the weather set in very warm. The ice went through with a rush, and they reached Mandan in about ten days, killing four beaver and five geese on the way, but lacking time to stop to do any regular hunting. Meanwhile, I took the three thieves into Dickinson, the nearest town. The going was bad, and the little mares could only drag the wagon at a walk. So, though we drove during the daylight, it took us two days and a night to make the journey. It was a most desolate drive. The prairie had been burned the fall before, and was a mere bleak waste of blackened earth, and a cold, rainy mist lasted throughout the two days. The only variety was where the road crossed the shallow headwaters of Knife and Green Rivers. Here the ice was high along the banks, and the wagon had to be taken to pieces to get it over. My three captives were unarmed, but as I was alone with them, except for the driver, of whom I knew nothing, I had to be doubly on my guard, and never let them come close to me. The little mares went slowly, and the heavy road rendered any hope of escape by flogging up the horses so entirely out of the question that I soon found the safest plan was to put the prisoners in the wagon and myself walk behind with the inevitable Winchester. Accordingly, I trudged steadily the whole time behind the wagon through the ankle-deep mud. It was a gloomy walk. Hour after hour went by always the same. While I plodded along through the dreary landscape, hunger, cold, and fatigue struggling with a sense of dogged, weary resolution. At night, when we put up at the squalid hut of a frontier granger, the only habitation on our road, it was even worse. I did not dare go to sleep, but making my three men get into the upper bunk, from which they could get out only with difficulty, I sat up with my back against the cabin door and kept watch over them all night long. So, after thirty-six hours' sleeplessness, I was most heartily glad when we at last jolted into the long, straggling main street of Dickinson, and I was able to give my unwilling companions into the hands of the sheriff. Under the laws of Dakota, I received my fees as a deputy sheriff for making the three arrests, and also mileage for the three hundred odd miles gone over, a total of some $50. If you're still there, you've been a most patient bunch. Those were the words of Theodore Roosevelt recounting the chase and the April 1st, 1886 capture of the boat thieves. The chapter was Sheriff's Work on a Ranch from Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail published by Century 
in 1888. When Theodore Roosevelt came out of the, uh, out of the sheriff's office, uh, he stopped the first man he saw uh, on the uh, boardwalk and he said, uh, can you tell me where I can find a, a, a doctor, a physician? And it was Dr. Stickney uh, who informed him he was the only physician in that part of the territory. Uh, T.R. said his feet were so blistered, uh, torn up with the rose bushes and the marching uh, that uh, he needed to have his uh, feet fixed up. And uh, Stickney took him to his uh, office and fixed him up and then went home and had lunch with his wife and said he'd just met the most uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, fellow. And, and uh, th those stories and others are so beautifully told in my friend Rolf Sletten's book, Roosevelt's Ranches. Uh, uh, his telling of the uh, chase and capture of the boat thieves, uh, probably even more uh, vivid and, and such a great uh, picture book to go along with the stories as well. You've been most indulgent. We've come to an hour of a program. Uh, Justin Fisk, uh, and all of my friends at the Medora Foundation, thanks for the uh, use of the Medora Facebook page. Uh, we'll work on getting these uh, uh, broadcasts together on, on one camera. Uh, maybe we'll get some graphics and those kinds of things. Uh, the uh, future readings will be uh, much shorter, uh, most of them. Some of them, like The Strenuous Life from April uh, 1899 in Chicago and uh, The Man in the Arena, uh, those speeches uh, later in April will again be read at length. Maybe not your cup of tea. For the longer speeches, you might like to break them up into uh, uh, two or, or three listenings. Thanks for being with us today. Today, I'm thoughtful and prayerful for the men and women aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt, CVN-71, The Big Stick. That nuclear aircraft carrier, the Navy and Marine Corps personnel aboard, they're in Guam in the Pacific Ocean. The captain uh, has uh, informed the Department of the Navy that uh, uh, the boat uh, has the uh, COVID-19, uh, the coronavirus on board, uh, that many of the men and women on board that ship are infected. All across this country, we're being called to, uh, to work hard uh, through these coming days. Godspeed, all the best. See you tomorrow for Theodore Roosevelt's message to our college students celebrating the uh, April 2nd, 1903 speeches given in Chicago and Evanston uh, to assembled audiences at the University of Chicago and Northwestern University. Thanks for being with us. All the best from Medora, where it's snowing on April 1st. Bye. -bye.